0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. know that Steve had said the very last line of a mighty fortress is our God, his kingdom is forever, that that's the line that stood out to him, but the reason that I chose that hymn this morning was because of the line, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. That sounds very Calvinistic, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It sounds very Luther-like. It's very full of the theology that we agree with, and in fact, the very thing that we've been talking about, God's irresistibility, so God has willed his truth to triumph through us. God's word always accomplishes what he sends it to accomplish, I hope that last week you got some sense of the sovereignty, the majesty, the unchangeableness, and the perfection of God, that he does whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, with whoever he wants to do it, anytime he wants to do it. And that kind of freedom of ability and power Is something that we just do not have the combination of omnipotence all power combined with the all good all perfect will is something that we just simply do not have and therefore when I came across the doctrines of grace for the first time in my life I was actually very comforted by them I was very happy to know that God was in charge And I did not really have a hard time accepting the idea that God was completely sovereign and completely in charge. When going through the doctrines of grace and teaching the doctrines of grace, there are some who argue that it should not just be five doctrines, that there should be a sixth doctrine, and that doctrine would be the sovereignty of God in all things, And the more that you know about the sovereignty of God, the more you can conclude, just by virtue of the fact that that's what he's like, that's his character, that's his nature, you can conclude safely that the end result is he does do whatever he wants to do, and therefore he is irresistible. It's unavoidable. So last week, I tried to really emphasize the characteristics of God But human beings have this tenacious stubbornness within them where they want to say, well, then I agree, God is like all that. He is perfect. He is just. He is omnipotent. He is all that. But, and this is the exact language that I've heard so many preachers use, but he's also a gentleman. And because he is a gentleman, He would never encroach on the freedom of choice and will that any of his creatures possess. Because when they think about God's sovereignty, they say that God, in his sovereignty, gave free will to his creatures. I don't know how that would work. If people don't actually have to obey a sovereign, he's not really very sovereign then. That kind of undermines his sovereignty if people don't have to do what he says. But that is the notion that people carry around in their head. No matter how internally contradictory it may seem, there are people who say that, yes, God is sovereign, but he does not encroach on the freedom of will of his creatures. So it is still up to the creature to decide what participation God is going to have in their life. It is up to the creature individually to decide whether they're going to obligate God, whether they're going to let God save them, whether they're going to take advantage of the finished work of Christ where apparently he made people save a bowl without actually saving anybody. So we're going to start this morning with that background in place. We're going to start this morning by answering the question, well, then, does the Bible itself actually say that it is God that causes us to believe the truth? Because if that is true, then the argument about people exercising their own free will in order to be saved is proven to be a fallacious sub-biblical argument. And to my way of thinking... It kind of closes the argument. So does the Bible say not only that God is sovereign, not only that he is holy and righteous and perfect, but does it also say that it is God who gives us the ability to understand his word and to believe on his son? Does the Bible say that anywhere? Well, it turns out the answer is yes. That's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible does not leave open the opportunity for people to deny God or resist God if God is out to get them. For instance, a phrase as simple as Philippians one twenty nine. I have referenced this verse several different times in several different contexts because it says that God has given us. God has granted us, not for our sake, but for Christ's sake, because Christ came to the planet, did the work, took the wrath of God, because he suffered in our place, God then, for the sake of Christ and for everything that Christ did, God then does some things for the people of God in order for the people of God to be given to Christ for the worship of Christ for the glory of Christ so it is for Christ's sake that God does some things here's what he does Philippians 1:29 for to you it has been granted in other words it's been given to you for Christ's sake Not only to believe in him. Now because there's a second little phrase at the end of that sentence, you get the not only but also, but just look at that at face value, it's been granted to you by God for Christ's sake to believe in Christ. That's about as clear a statement as you get from the Bible that the reason you believe is because God gave you that ability. He granted it to you. Now, of course, the second half of that verse says, not only is it granted to you to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. And I have often said, I wish there had been an earlier period. I don't like the comma and continual thought after that. But Paul, who has gone through a great deal of suffering, admits that the suffering is suffering for Christ's sake, and he sees that as leading to what he calls the better resurrection. So he even sees the suffering in this life as part of that package that God has granted to his own people. In other words, neither the belief in Christ nor the suffering for Christ's sake is something that human beings dreamed up on their own Or decided to accomplish by their own free will. The Bible says it was granted to you from God to even be able to be like that. To even think about the things of God. To understand the Bible at all. To comprehend the notion that God himself sent his son to the planet who then died as a substitutionary atonement for particular people who were chosen before the foundation of the world. If you can begin to get a hold of that and comprehend that in any way, it is because God granted that to you. He gave you that. Almost like a gift, he granted it to you. Philippians 2.13 It's actually the end of a longer thought where Paul is saying, now that I'm going to be absent from you, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, what did that verse just say? He said, it is God who is at work, it is God doing the work, the power to do the work, the exercise of the work itself is all God working through you to do two things. Number one, will. So I think that eliminates the notion of your free will or your decision making on your own. Rather, it is God who caused you to do the willing. Why were you willing to come to Christ? Why were you willing? to stake your eternal claim and your eternal soul on Christ. Well, it is because God worked through you to make you willing to do that. Even in the Old Testament, we read that in the day of your power, then your people are going to be willing. When God exercises his almighty power to work through his people. His people then very willingly do the things of God. Here, let's see if I can clarify that. There was a time as a young Lutheran person where I was taught the Ten Commandments and I was taught Luther's definition of those Ten Commandments I had to memorize them and be able to recite them as part of my catechism. What I knew, once I could recite the Ten Commandments and once I could define them according to Luther's definition, the one thing I knew was I didn't like them because I couldn't do them. I knew that they stood as a testimony against me and that they were pointing out my inability, my failing. So I memorized them, and I memorized the definitions so that I could go through the catechism and have my first communion like a good little Lutheran boy. But I knew from the beginning of being introduced to the Ten Commandments that I couldn't do them. Now, initially then, come high school, college years, I left the Lutheran church because there was no room for somebody who just couldn't do it. So I left. Years later, God got a hold of me, and he taught me grace. God opened my mind, opened my heart to the real teaching that resides in the Bible, and now I do the things I used to resist, and I do them most willingly. My will changed, my desire changed, my desire to please God, my desire to walk in a way that would be a testimony to the value of Christ in my life. That came from him. I didn't make that up. I didn't construct that on my own. And I'm sure that every one of you could come up with your own similar testimony. You can remember a day, a time in your life when you resisted these things. And now you're here. Despite the fact that we have had all kinds of political and health reasons not to come to church. Nevertheless, you're here because you want to make that testimony, you want to worship God, you want to be together with the saints of God, and you do it most willingly. Well, why? Well, according to Philippians 2.13, Paul says, it is God who is at work in you so that you both will and work. So even the good works that you do, the good works that God ordained that you would walk in, are not something you get credit for. Given how you are, given yourself, if it was up to you, you would not be walking this way. You'd be walking according to the prince of the power of the air. You'd be walking according to your own fleshly desires. But instead, you are walking a different way. The works of your life are different works. The will of your life is a different will and all of it is for his good pleasure. All of it is because that's what he, in and of himself, decided to do in you. So you don't get credit for the doing, you don't get credit for the willing, you don't get credit for the believing, you don't get credit for the understanding. You get credit for none of it because it is God who is working through you. In order that you would will and work according to his good pleasure. It is God who gives you the ability to believe. And therefore, you can't resist that. Once he gives you that gift, that is a permanent gift from God. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't give you that gift and then go, "Oh, what a mistake. Here I was, busy trying to save Steve, and then Steve became all stevish. He became all stevie on us. He exercised steviosity on us. Keep going. <laughs> that is not what God ever did. God understood that Steve was going to be Steve. And so he knew that it was going to take his own power working through Steve in order to accomplish the willingness and the work that accompanies the faith. Amen. I was expecting Luann to amen that. <laughs> she amen in the steviosity part. <laughs> now, of course, we can't talk about this kind of stuff without going back to Ephesians 1 yet again, because the first couple chapters of the book of Ephesians are Paul's great treatise on God's predestinary determination that certain people were going to believe, certain people were going to come to Christ. I'm going to read from Ephesians 1. I'm going to start at verse 4. For he chose us in him. Okay, there's three pronouns going on right there. Let me separate them down. He is God. He chose us, we saints of God, and he chose us through Christ, in Christ, because of what Christ actually did, what Christ accomplished. God then is going to give a people to Christ for Christ's glory. For all eternity, therefore, the choosing action of God was done through his knowledge of who Christ is and what Christ accomplished and what his goal for Christ is, which is to honor his son so that his son has the name that is above every name. Therefore, when God did the choosing of individual people, he did it in view of who Christ is and what he wants to do for Christ. So even God's choice of you is not because of you. The choice of you was because of Christ. Like we read previously, it's for Christ's sake. For he, God, chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. And what did he choose us to be? He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. That kind of phraseology always makes me pause and marvel because I hope that I have hidden at least some amount of my blamefulness from the rest of you. If you ever really knew what goes on in my brain, you would run for the door screaming. But then again, I expect it's the same with what's going on in your brain. And yet we're going to stand before him completely separated from the world, from sin, from our own sin, from our own rebellion, so that we stand before him holy, perfected, completely separated from all that, and blameless. And if you're anything like me, and I hope to God you're not, but if you're anything like me... David said, my sin is always before me. Well, same idea. My blame and the things that I deserve to be blamed for, I'm always aware of it. And I think, how could God ever choose a person like me? Well, that's why the choosing is all done through Christ what Christ did, what Christ accomplished for the glorification of Christ. We are chosen through him, in him, for his glory. Therefore, our blamefulness is no hindrance to an almighty God bringing us to a state of blamelessness for Christ's sake. Isn't that great? I mean, just plain, flat, great. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Again, it's all by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ's glory. So we did it through Jesus Christ, adopting us into the family of God in accordance with his own pleasure and will. You will notice it is not according to our will. It's not according to our decision. It's according to his own good pleasure. Why is he saving you? Because that's what pleases him. He's pleased to give his son a name that is above every name. He is pleased to give his son all the glory and to have trophies of grace for all eternity that will worship and praise the son. He's pleased to do that. And so he is saving people, choosing people, pulling people out of the corruption of this world for the purpose of glorifying his son because, not because of what those people did, not because of how good people are not because there are some people who deserve it who are slightly better than everybody else he's doing it according to his own good pleasure and his will it's his desire to do that and if he has all the power then he can accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish according to his own will and all of that to the praise Of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the beloved, in the one he loves. Notice how often Paul keeps saying, through Christ, in Christ, by Christ. It's all about Christ. It's for Christ's glorification. And ultimately, it is all about the beloved one. So we are saved. We are brought to eternity. And we are saved freely because it is God's grace. Now, Paul defines grace in another place for us where he says if it is of works your individual human works then it's not grace he says then it's merit then it's something that you've earned and the idea that you could earn it undermines the very definition of what grace is in order to be grace it has to be given to those who cannot deserve it, do not deserve it, couldn't do anything to deserve it, therefore God did it by grace. And so Paul says that everything God is doing in saving us through Jesus Christ is to the praise of his glorious grace. And by the way, I don't think that praise stops when our mortal lives stop. I think that praise is just starting When we get to glory. Because that's the purpose for which we're going to be in glory. For his praise and his worship. And what are we going to praise about him? I don't think. This is just me. This is just me speculating for a moment. This is the Jimmerized version of this text. I don't think that we're ever through all of eternity going to get over the marvelous grace of God that brought us there. Amen. Hope, we never do. Hope we never do. We're never going to feel so at home that we're going to take it for granted. I think we're always going to recognize that we only stand there because of him. Otherwise, if we ever get comfortable with the notion, I think we would stop worshiping. We wouldn't be as sincere, as continuous In our worship and praise, it is always going to be for all eternity to the praise of his marvelous, glorious grace. I know I say the word grace a lot, but salvation is a matter of God's grace. And it's all for the glory of his grace. You will notice that Paul did not say, it's all to the praise of his glorious might and power. He said, it's all to his glorious grace. That's why God is doing these things. And it is all through the one that he loves. It's all through Christ. In him, in Christ, we have redemption Through his blood, through his sacrifice, through his finished work. That's what the phrase through his blood is making reference to. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's what real redemption is. If all our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, never to be brought up again. And we get to be with God in eternity in the splendor that belongs only to his son. And yet we become joint heirs with his son. The marvel of our sin, our our most horrible moments, our most horrible thoughts, our most rebellious moments, all of that just being swept away is unbelievably good. That is what the redemption through his blood has purchased for us the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Which then Paul says, Oh, he didn't just give us a little bit of grace. If he has completely forgiven our sins, and we're for all eternity going to be in the presence of God in that light that no man approaches if we are going to be there for the glory of his son, so that we're worshiping and praising him forever for his grace, he says it's not just grace that was given to us in small measure, but rather it is grace that he lavished on us. A lot of grace. Because it takes a lot of grace to overcome a lot of sins. And every one of us individually are guilty for a whole lot of sins. And yet he's going to forgive us for our sins, but not because of us. Not because we did the right thing. Not because we're good. He's doing it in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he is lavishing on us. With all wisdom and with all understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will so it starts with his will again he's the only one who has the genuine freedom of will to do whatever he wants and then in his willingness he graciously chose to save some of us and then we became enlightened to that fact because he by his own wisdom and understanding made us understand What it was he was doing. So you don't even get credit for getting it. (laughs) The very fact that you comprehend it. The very fact that you understand it. Is because with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us. The mystery of his will. According to his own good pleasure. Which he purposed in Christ. Yet again because this is all done for the sake of Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. So God determined to do all this before the worlds began, and then he accomplished it once time began here on planet Earth. And with every moment in time, with every season that came about, there were certain things that God had determined to do during that period of time. And he accomplished them one by one through those periods of time. To put into effect... When the times reach their fulfillment. To bring unity to all things in heaven and earth. Where? Under Christ. It just keeps going back to that. It keeps going back to this is about Christ. It's for Christ's glory. It's all under Christ. It's for Christ's sake. So here's how he kind of sums that all up. Starting at verse 11. So in him, in Christ, we were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his own will in order that we, who are the first to put our hope in Christ, may be for the praise of his glory. That kind of summarizes everything I've been attempting to say up here. Paul just said that the reason you've been chosen was not because of you. It wasn't anything you did. It wasn't anything that you performed. It wasn't any part of you that was just slightly better than everybody else so that God would choose you and not somebody else. You were chosen by the grace of God who does all things according to his own will. And that's why he predestined you according to his own plan. Because he's the one who works out everything In conformity with his own purpose, he has his own purpose, his own plan, his own ideas, and everything that he does and everything that he accomplishes is in accordance with that plan. So whatever he chose to do, whatever he constructed before the foundation of the world, is actually coming to pass In time, as the various seasons of life go by, he continues to do exactly according to the plan that he made up before the foundation of the world. So whatever happens in your life, that is according to his plan, that is what he has determined for you, and part of what he has determined for you is your ultimate salvation. In him, we are chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his own will in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Okay, so why did I read all that? Why did I try to exegete some of that? Exca- ex- okay, I'm going to have a drink of water now. I couldn't say explicate for some reason. Why would I take the time to go through all that? Because if you know that that is God's perspective on what he is doing since before the foundation of the world and that he does everything according to, the, to his own purpose and what he has planned and that he is working it out by times and seasons and when the time is full, he accomplishes the next part of it, is there any chance that that all-powerful God who works out everything in conformity with his own purpose, is there any chance that a creature made of the dust of this earth, can by their own willfulness and stubbornness upset that plan? Well, if the answer is no, then you've just agreed that his grace is irresistible. That was a long way around, a circuitous route to get you to the point of realizing the plan of God is unavoidable irresistible it is God who gives you the ability to believe now in Ephesians 1 we just read about the big overview the big grandest view of God working out his purpose but then when you read things like Acts 16 14 you're all going to be familiar with this you see it playing out in human life the same way that it played out in your life It says, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening to Paul and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. Okay, so in Ephesians 1, you heard that it is God who has to give you the ability to understand these things. That's also what we read from Philippians. This concept, this idea that it is God who has to give you the ability to understand it. Acts 16 just states it plainly. The reason that Lydia did understand or pay attention to the things that the Apostle Paul was teaching was because God opened her heart in order to respond to the things that Paul was teaching. So you not only see it theoretically, theologically You not only see it spelled out in great big grand terms, but you also see it spelled out individually, in real time. So then we have to ask, well then, is that normative? I mean, that's the Bible, but is that the way that it always works in every case? Well, I can give you lots of biblical examples of God's irresistibility I gave you some last week, but think about like the lame man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda when Jesus said to him, take up your bed and walk. Why did he take up his bed and walk? I mean, he wanted to be healed. He wanted to get down there when the angel touched the water and whoever got down there first would be healed. He wanted to be healed really bad, but he didn't have any man to carry him into the water. He, he was just laying there at the pool feeling defeated. And yet Jesus, who we did not know, we even told the Pharisees he didn't know. Yet when Jesus walked up to him and said, get up, walk, pick up your bed, Start walking. He did it. Why? I'm going to argue that's irresistibility. Even the man's disease had to respond to the very word of God. Or let's think about blind Bartimaeus receiving his sight, saying to Jesus, if you're willing, you could give me back my sight. Jesus says, I'm willing. The man can see again. Why? Because the man's busted up eyes had to respond to the irresistible word of God. Lazarus laying in the tomb. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. I'm doubting that Lazarus said, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to lay here. I could use a nap. The reason that Lazarus got up and not everybody in the tomb, the reason Lazarus rose from the dead was because even death cannot defy the irresistible word of God everything responds to the word of God the twelve who Jesus chose when you read the early accounts of him going to fishermen and just saying follow me and we read that immediately they put down their nets and they followed him that is an effectual call when Jesus walks up and says, you're mine, and you put away everything else and follow him, that's irresistible. How much power did any of them actually exert? How much willfulness did they demonstrate? How much authority in and of themselves did they demonstrate? I think we would all have to agree, since they didn't know him Since they weren't looking for him, like the man born blind, blind from birth. He he didn't know Jesus. In fact, when he was questioned by the uh, authorities, he said that he didn't know him. In fact, Jesus walked up and introduced himself to the man in the temple later on. So these were not people that were seeking God. These are people that God was seeking. These are people who were changed because of the power of the irresistibility of God. And then you get to Pauline theology and Pauline writing, and it's just absolutely chock full of that kind of thinking and theology. Why? Why is that Paul's view of how people get changed, how people get saved, how people are converted? Why? Well, it's because that's what happened to him. So let's read it. Go to Acts 9 for just a moment. Now Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that was an early name for Christianity, both men and women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem apparently so that they could suffer the same fate that Stephen did. He wanted to bring them back to Jerusalem, and it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Paul was not looking for Jesus. That's the point I want you to see. Paul was not out there being all seeker sensitive. He was not out there hoping to bump into Jesus. Instead, he was going out to kill people who were part of the way. Jesus appeared to him, asks, why are you persecuting me? Well, verse 7 says, and the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and... Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus called Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests." to bind all who call upon that name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he arose and he was baptized and he took his food and he was strengthened. Okay, so how much willfulness, determination, activity did Paul contribute to his salvation? Just none, not only none, but he was put in a state where he couldn't do anything. Three days, three nights without food. He's in a weakened condition. His eyes are blind. And so he literally cannot do anything He was out trying to kill Christians. He was not looking for Jesus. Jesus came to him. Jesus converted him. Jesus overwhelmed him. Jesus irresistibly told him that he was going to be a chosen instrument in the hand of God in order to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to kings, to the sons of Israel because God had already chosen him to do that work. And then Paul was set to that work. And the very next thing that we read is now for several days he was with the, with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. That's a big change. He was on his way to kill Christians for believing that Jesus was the son of God. Here he is in the synagogue now proclaiming that Jesus is the very son of God. What happened? Well, Jesus met him. Jesus overwhelmed him. Jesus irresistibly changed his heart, his mind, his will opened his mind and heart in order to be able to receive and understand these things. So then knowing all that, the whole reason I've gone through this part of the exercise this morning is so that I can ask this question. Knowing that that's the way that Paul was converted, what are the chances that he is then going to create a theology that says the way human beings are saved is by their will and good works? Of course he's not going to say that. Because that was not his experience. His experience was the irresistibility of God. So of course he is going to say. That if anybody is saved. If anybody is redeemed. It's because God chose them. Before the foundation of the world. And because God who does all things according to his own good pleasure. To the glory of his own grace. He then redeems certain people. For the glory of Christ, of course that would be his theology, it couldn't be any other way, given everything that he underwent, and then everything that Jesus taught him, everything that was revealed to him, the mysteries of the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, He knows he didn't construct that. He knows he didn't decide that. He didn't determine it. He knew that these were all long-held mysteries that were revealed to him. So there's just simply no way that he could have come to the conclusion that it was up to you and your will and that God is going to sit back and wait to find out what you decide. Under the circumstances of what Paul's gone through, he could only say, what we've already read. He could only say what he said to the Ephesians. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to adoption and sonship in accordance to his good pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely given to us through the beloved. Of course he would say that. And so when people postulate, when they make up the notion that human beings of their own free will just decide to be saved or decide to obligate God, that's not anything that you can find in the Bible, nor would it be, given the circumstances of those people who are saved in the Bible. Does that make sense? Now I know you all just saw me close my Bible and you started to exhale. Uh, I'm not done yet. I've gotten my notes open still. I just shut my Bible. That's all that happened there. Paul's conversion leaves him with the necessary theology that he teaches. His theology of salvation had to be influenced and defined by his own salvation experience. He's not going to preach free will after his conversion experience. Now, since we're talking about free will, you know, last week I said that libertarian free will, genuine libertarian free will would be the ability at any given moment to decide to do or not to do, completely independent of any outside force, any outside influence that every individual would have to operate as a completely independent agent where they, through no influence outside of themselves, decided to do or not do something. And I think it's kind of interesting, these last few weeks as we've been watching the church respond to the coronavirus. And I have tried not to opinionate too much about the coronavirus and the church's response to it, mostly because the social media at this point is just absolutely littered with people offering opinions, and mine would just be one more that we could throw on the heap, and so I haven't done it. But if you asked just about any church, even the free will churches, if you ask them Would it be a good idea? Would you like to close your doors for a while and not meet, not gather? The language of church is all about gathering. That's why we are the Grace Christian Assembly, because I think that is the best rendering for the word ecclesia. It means an assembly of people. Even the word congregation, to congregate, the Latin word from which we get the English word congregation, congregatio I think is the word, the verb form of that word means to gather sheep, to herd sheep. So my point is the language of church, even the word communion, has to do with the church gathering as a group. And so if you were to ask most leaders of most churches, even free will churches, do you think it would be a good idea to just not gather anymore? How about you just close your doors and maybe you go online to try to do I'm sure that the vast majority would say, no, that's not a good idea. I can't imagine that there would be people who would say, yeah, great, let's do that. So the vast majority, according to their own will, would say, no, we're not going to do that. And yet they did do it. Why did they do it? Because of outside influences, whether that's the government, whether that's viruses, whether that's what they believe is what's good for the community. Whatever those circumstances and ideas and rules were, they are still outside influences that cause them to do the very thing they wouldn't have wanted to do. That is an abrogation of the notion of free will. Do you understand me? Mm -hmm. People do not have a free will. Even psychologists will tell you that people do not have a free will because we are a product of our environment. The way we were raised, the people who raised us, the church we went to, the job we hold, anything in your life, where you live, the community you're surrounded by, whether you're tall or short, all of those things play into your decision-making. And that is why, theologically, we can argue that your will is always influenced by outside forces and the primary outside force in you is your sinfulness, your desire for your own flesh, your desire to satiate your desires get more pleasure, avoid pain. That itself plays on your will. So your will being influenced by so many outside forces cannot be as changeable as that willfulness is cannot be the standard on which you are saved because then the changeableness, the alterableness of your will could just as easily get you unsaved again. I said all of that to say you should be really, really happy that it is the will of God that actually accomplished your salvation because if it was your will, you would end up doing the things you don't even want to do. Because outside influences, outside forces can talk you into stuff. And then you'll do it and think it was your decision. I guarantee you every pastor who closed his church, even the free will churches, believe that it was their decision. Except their decision was influenced by all these outside forces. So, if there's going to be an outside force on your will, it is either going to be This world and the prince of the power of the air and your sinfulness and your depravity and Satan himself influencing you or it's going to be the will of God that is the primary influence on your will. And if it is God who is the primary influence on your will, that is because he decided that he would influence you. And his influence on you and over you is irresistible. Thank you, God. Get all that? Okay, I know those were big philosophical and theological concepts, but did everybody follow that thinking? Okay, good. Now, when you say that God is irresistible, that God cannot be resisted by sinners, that idea that man can resist God if he wants to. Is a bit of mythology that men have constructed because of their deep love of themselves. But the very fact that irresistibility exists proves that man's will is limited because we cannot resist the all powerful God. And so human beings in their ego will search the Bible to try to find some example of somebody resisting so that they can say, well, look, I have a biblical example here of uh, somebody resisting, so therefore you can resist the will of God. You can resist the Holy Spirit if you want to because the Bible says so, and they will all run to Acts 7. And if I have heard this argument once in my life, I have heard it a hundred times. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard this, I'd have a small stack of nickels. (laughs) There it is. The common argument is, Stephen speaking, this is Acts 7, 51 to 53. Stephen, as he's being stoned, says to the people who were stoning him after he has preached a message that shows the continuity between Old Covenant Israel and Christ coming. This is, his argument is Christ is just the natural graduation of everything that Israel has known, everything God has revealed to them. It's all been leading up to Christ, and they stoned him for that. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who receive the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Okay, so right in the middle of that speech, Stephen said, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. And so people want to point at that to say, see, the Holy Spirit can be resisted. It was part of the original Arminian argument. Part of their defense of the notion that the Spirit could be resisted was that Stephen said to the leaders in Israel, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. And that they used as evidence for the notion, just like they do today, they continue to use that as the evidence of the notion that human beings of their own free will can resist the Holy Spirit. But if you look at it closely, there's a key word. The key word is always. And if you always do something, you're not free to do the other thing. When Stephen said, you always resist the Holy Spirit, he was declaring, you can't do anything but resist the Holy Spirit. And that is the way that human beings naturally are. We would all continually, constantly, always resist the things of God were it not for God irresistibly overwhelming our will. Then we stop resisting. Our resisting is built into us, which is why Paul wrote that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. God sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins while we were still adamantly opposed to Him. So then He changed us and overwhelmed us irresistibly, but to the people that He did not do that for, they remain in the state of always resisting because that's who they are, that's what they're like, that's what their sin results in. They always resist. Everything that has to do with God. They always resist. And so rather than that passage being a demonstration of free will, what that is is a demonstration of the complete bondage of the human will. Because, again, if the will was truly free, you would be able to choose not to resist. So it wouldn't be an always thing. Instead, Stephen would have had to say, at this moment, you're resisting, but I hope you change your mind later. That's not what he said. He said, you always resist, and if you always do something, your will is not free to do the other thing. Okay, so human beings are born in that state of always resisting the will of God, and we can't change ourselves God has to change us so that we stop that always resisting, and the only way that he can overcome our constant resistance is for his will to be irresistible to us. Got it? Got it. Am I boring you? No. Okay. I'm nearly done. God has to give you the ability to love him, God has to give you the ability to obey him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. The whole loving relationship started with God. And he has to then give you the ability to love him in return. And because he loves you, he'll give you that ability so that you then return the love. God does not respond to you because You love him. He's not waiting to find out if you, in your constant rebellion, are suddenly going to wake up and love him. Instead, he loves you in your enemy state, he loves you in your resisting state, he loves you in your sinful state, and then grants you the ability to love him back. Same thing with obeying him. You were not born obedient. Anybody who has children knows. Children are not born obedient. Can I get a witness? Amen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he has to give you the ability to love him. He has to give you the ability to obey him. He has to give you the ability to believe in him. I think we've seen that. So given what we know about us and about our fallen state, if we could continue in our resistance of God, we would. That's what we're about. We would always resist. That's what Stephen said. We would always resist unless God changed us from within. The only reason we come to him is because he changes us, draws us to himself, and then causes us to believe his word. Causes us. That word was not an accidental word. He didn't allow us to understand his word. He caused us to understand his word. What you know right now about the things of God. is because God himself made you know it. Otherwise you'd resist it. Jesus himself said it. We'll close with these words. Verily, verily, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out, And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from a stranger because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. The call of God by the Holy Spirit is the call of the chief shepherd to his sheep. It's not a general cry. He is not in the streets lifting up his voice just in case somebody might come along and agree and validate him. It is a specific call to specific people. The reason that he calls out particular people is because they are his sheep and he is the great shepherd is going to call every one of them and they're going to know his voice and they're going to respond. When God was walking in the garden, he called Adam by name. He said, Adam. When he called Samuel, when Samuel was sleeping, he called out to him a few times in the night. Samuel kept going to Eli and saying, what? Eli said, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. When Moses was an Egyptian prince and he saw the burning bush, God said to him, Moses spoke to him, called him out by name. After the angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob, he said, Your name is no longer going to be Jacob, it's going to be Israel. In other words, God is so personal, so individual, that he calls people out, but he calls them by their name. And he, even in the case of Jacob, changed his name from heel catcher to prince that has power with God. When God intercepted Saul, On the Damascus Road, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say to him, yo, Hebrew guy, what's the deal with the persecution? He said, Saul, he knew exactly who it was. Why? Because in explaining it, he said, he's a chosen vessel. I chose him. I chose him individually and personally. I chose him by name. When Jesus called Lazarus from the dead, he called him by name. Lazarus, come forth. Every one of those people was in a position of ignorance and defiance or complete disinterest in the things of God when God called them. And yet... They were not going to remain in that condition in which he found them. The call of God is with the intent of changing men and the almighty God will work his purpose. Will, that word will is on purpose. He will work his purpose. He will always work his purpose. It's a divine purpose according to his own grace for the glorification of his son and he's not going to leave something as important as the glorification of his son up to measly little you got it? You're part of the big plan. You're part of the big scheme of God who is in the enterprise of glorifying his son. That makes you trophies of his undeniable, overwhelming, irresistible grace. And that is why we believe in irresistible grace. You can't resist that kind of grace. Amen. It's, a good thing. Thank you. it's a good thing. Oh, it's a good thing. Oh, man. We've got a few more things to say about irresistibility next week, and then we will move on to uh, our perseverance in the faith. Questions? I know big chunks of that were rather wordy philosophical treatises. But hopefully, I I had somebody write to me a couple of years ago, very kind compliment. They said, You take these high minded, complicated concepts and you put them down on the low shelf where we can all get to them. And I liked that turn of a phrase. So I hope uh, I kept everything in an understandable form this morning.